I've had to learn to figure out how to make sure you can move forward from something and kind of make it a part of who you are and a part of your work. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Greg Miller, Head of Fundraising for IHC, New Zealand's main provider of services for people with intellectual disabilities. A special episode for me, Greg was my first boss out of university. I joined the Auckland City Mission with a desire to create a career focused on purpose. However, on reflection, I was incredibly green. Greg was a wonderful first boss. He helped ignite my passion for the sector and for fundraising. Also, the knowledge he gave me, and he put a real investment in me learning. I remember things like the donor pyramid, stuff that still stays with me to today and creates the sort of building blocks of my career. So, indebted to Greg, wonderful to have him on purposely. You're going to enjoy the episode. He's had roles in New Zealand, global roles. There's nothing this guy doesn't know about fundraising. He's very skilled in the art of fundraising, although we talk about the science as well. Before we dive into the show, though, can I just make a request, whatever platform you're on, whether you're on Apple, whether you're on Spotify, can I just ask you to hit follow? Thank you. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Greg Miller. A really well welcome to Purposely Podcast. It's lovely to be here. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, no problem. You're the National Manager of Fundraising at IHC New Zealand, role you've had for, I think, more than a decade. Tell us a bit about their mission and, and their purpose, what they do in New Zealand. It's two stints of about five years each. So I was here in the same role and then came back 20 years later, which is an interesting perspective anyway, and maybe we can talk about that later. But um, IHC is, it's been around 75 years and works, um, supports people with intellectual disability. And it's New Zealand only and pretty big not-for-profit in New Zealand, in fact, very big, and um, really providing lots of different type of services specifically for people with a, a learning disability, intellectual disability. It's always struck me that there's a lot of provision often for children who have disabilities and, and challenges intellectually, but actually life can get really hard for parents and for young people as, as they go into adulthood. A key part of what the IHC does is, is around that long-term provision and support. It is actually. Interestingly, what we find is that there's a, probably a lot of underfunding and vulnerability in those early stages for families as they're trying to figure out what the future will look like, what entitlements they may be, be able to get and not knowing. And it's such a minefield. It can be a bureaucratic, you know, just total minefield to get through for young parents going to school, meeting friends, all that kind of thing. And so a big part of the charitable work of IHC is helping support those families, getting information shared, getting other families to talk about their experience and sharing that information. And then as people move into adulthood, often they have things sorted and some of our services, which is idea services, which is people in residential facilities and care, 
that's different again. And that is pretty much we try and make sure that's fully government funded, you know, and so private donations aren't subsidizing what we see as a government responsibility. And so difficulty getting a diagnosis or get like they know parents will know something's wrong sometimes and they'll see a little signifiers of that, but they don't necessarily get a diagnosis. So they aren't seen and, and recognized for what they're going through. And it's often a fight or a battle, which you guys help them through. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it takes quite a few years. It's not all very, not all intellectual disabilities are immediately obvious at birth. Part of the diagnosis for an intellectual disability is that something that's normally with you from birth, it's not like an accident or something, obviously. And really, sometimes it's difficult to say what it is, and people need to be supported and assisted and and figure out how to get a diagnosis because then suddenly, you know, that family can get a teacher aid for their child at school. It can be the difference between being expelled from school because you're just difficult and having a teacher aid to make sure that you can succeed and you can do good things still and you can contribute and be an important part of that class, important part of that community. So, uh, yeah, that's and I guess as an organization, it's been on a journey as well. So that sort of empowerment of people and that they can have full lives, live to their full potential, but have a challenge into, or disability. But even just in terms of the naming of, of the organization, and because H stands for handicap, doesn't it? And that's a different way in which you described it now. Yeah, we have moved just to the initials. <laughs> so we don't, we don't spell out the name because it's just not appropriate and it's not us but 75 years ago that's what how it was being referred to and the disability so yes it's one of those things to most people nowadays coming on they just see it as ihc sometimes people say what does that stand for but you know it's really about just helping families it's i see a key thing from a fundraising perspective And when we're talking to donors or prospective donors, it's around being in people's community, in their backyard, local people, knowing local needs of some of the most vulnerable people in their community. You know, it's not just a Wellington National Organization deciding what the needs are. There are 33 associations around the country that have a good idea of their community and help IHC and charitable funding get to where it's needed the most quickly. Yeah. And do you have regular reminders of the good that you do? So, you know, I know you're a really good person at distilling stories and communicating stories and and therefore helps to raise funds. But are there times or the experiences, anything recently where you've gone, wow, we are really doing incredible work? Yeah, I get a lot of it. And I, I feel very privileged. I've worked with it, you know, been in fundraising for 33 years now, so have worked with a number of organizations that are wonderful organizations, but this does feel very connected to the impact that fundraising is having. So, and, you know, we've set in place a five-year, we call it income growth strategic outline, whatever, it's on a page. And like a lot of things, when it first came out, people said, oh, yeah, that would be nice, but we've heard it before. And um, 
we're hitting those goals as far as getting extra resources. So coming back to your question, Mark, what I can also see is my, you know, the senior management and people thinking, oh, actually this is happening. We can create things. We can start depending on the money coming in and knowing that we can do more and have a bigger impact. And so, yes, I see those stories every day. It's very close. I mean, and I do enjoy that. So. Mm. And like you've touched on there, you've had a phenomenal career in fundraising. We've, you certainly described the length of it. It's, it's, uh, it's long and deep. And I want to sort of take you back and just sort of understand where you come from, your roots and your journey, and then kind of back towards your current role. And I know you've had roles internationally, and you and I have worked together in the past, so we'll go into that. But you were born in India, so you, you live in Wellington now, but you were born in, in India in, in, in the, let's just say, early 60s. <laughs> yeah, early 60s, uh, yes, I was. So it's, I've been around for a while. And my parents were both medical missionaries with the Salvation Army. And so the first five years of my life was spent, they were running a residential facility and a workshop for people who had disabilities, interestingly enough. And um, there were 500 people there. Most of them had been on the street begging. And, you know, there was some training and and definitely a place to sleep and food and and a hospital for a hundred bed hospital. My mother was a nurse, my dad was a administrator, and then they went on to run a hospital in central India for the next four years of my life, although I spent a lot of that at boarding school, which was a long, you know, two day train journey away. But and early memories? Like you had other do you have siblings at the at the same time? What were the first memories of that time? Yeah, I have Quite a lot. I was the eldest, so I was nine by the time I left. And when I went back in 1988, I do, you know, I could remember quite a few things. Very sadly, my mother died. That's why we came back quite early in, I mean, she was in her early 30s. And that was 50 years ago. My dad didn't remarry for 25 years. So very much in love and doing loads of work out there. I know they were missionaries, but they were helping people in quite a effective way and yeah. doing lots of fantastic work as well as, you know, talking about their faith. But it was an important part of our life. And so my memories, you know, remembering the train journeys, trying to remember things about my mum, which is always, you know, interesting, and the school that I went to and it was a different upbringing, and I found when I was in New Zealand, suddenly you don't have all the common stories and, you know, whatever the TV program that kids watch here, I was out of. But it was a good, you know, good way to spend the early years of my life and yeah. certainly thrown into the sector. I guess the one thing that I realized after spending so much time in that work and growing up with it, and my dad continued in the Salvation Army back in New Zealand, working in different ways. I'd help him in weekends, you know, clearing lawns that were up to my waist for people who were alcoholics around the country, uh, around the Wellington. And um, the one thing that made me realize, I like to see the impact of the work. I'm not 
I don't want to be doing this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I found a perfect way to kind of see the impact, have an impact, you know, have a part of making it happen without being on the front line. Yeah. So your mum was 33 when she died and you were nine, super young for both of you. Like when you reflect on the impact, do you remember just being angry about it? Do you remember the kind of impact on nine-year-old Greg? Yeah, it's really, I remember I don't know if I was angry. I think that probably came a bit later when I was in my teenage years and couldn't quite figure out why this have to happen to her, uh, to her mum. My dad was amazing. You know, he brought up three kids as a solo father. Um, I was nine. My sister was seven. My brother, was Bruce, was only three. And he really did some, you know, just had an amazing way about him and is quite a special person in lots of ways and in his work and in his personal life. So it never felt like, you know, there was certainly a missing part in our life, but we were a close family um, and we enjoyed our life. But yes, it's sad when you lose someone so early and, you know, when I had kids with my wife Gina you suddenly think oh what was it like when my you know daughter or son was nine what would it have been like to lose their mum or their dad at that age and you know it's just it it adds a different perspective to it as you get older being a parent Um, yeah but I'm not you know my life has been good we had lots of amazing things and that is something that I've had to learn to figure out how to make sure, you know, you can move forward from something and kind of make it a part of who you are and a part of your work. Yeah. And I think losing a mum and having a dad who can deal with his own grief and then also be a, you know, be soft and probably hard and, you know, feminine and masculine and all those things that you need as a child. Like And like you said, you didn't have a female you know, he didn't remarry. There wasn't a woman in the life in your life for a period of time in that in that context. So, yeah, like a phenomenal father that I imagine you're very close to. Yeah, yeah, and you know, learned a lot from over the years. And he is still alive. Ninety, well, he's just turned ninety. So he and still tell some amazing stories. Sometimes they're getting a bit repetitive, according to my <laughs> They love it. I love it. Yeah. And he, you know, he's he remarried 25 years after mum died and lovely wife, Ophelia, but he did bring us up through our formative years and did an amazing job. Learned how to cook. He said he didn't even know how to boil water before. Yeah. Very important. <laughs> so, so you guys, you arrived back in New Zealand, and you you talked on it, talked about then actually around doing with Tim's in, in the weekend that actually were around making a difference to people's lives. So these that early grounding on seeing your parents as Salvation Army officers, helping people, is a strong sense of giving back and making your life count for good. That was always a strong narrative throughout your earlier years. Yeah, it certainly was, and trying to figure out what. I could do going forward. So I went to university 
basically because I didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> did an arts degree, decided I didn't want to be a teacher, but ended up with a double major in English and education. And then, you know, just kind of quite luckily got a temp job at when I was in London on my two-year overseas experience with the NSPCC. And for people in New Zealand that don't know that, that's a very large charity, the National Society Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And I was in their press and public relations office back in 1987, I think. And it was it was a really good introduction to see how they you know, that they were so much more advanced than New Zealand was when it came to communicating, talking to donors, talking to the general public, and to be doing a very small job there for about six months was really, it set the foundation to my fundraising. And it also made me think, oh, I like this. I can work, a, you know, <laughs> distant from make you know the people on the front line who were doing fantastic work and still feel connected to it still feel like i'm part of it and having an impact and so that's that's that i stumbled onto the job in fundraising as most fundraisers probably have done maybe not so much nowadays but um, Certainly back then. I'm not going to say how old you are, Mark, but back in our day, we <laughs> yeah. stumbled into it. Yeah, no one grew up <laughs> wanting to be a fundraiser necessarily, but there was a, I was a believer in sort of sliding doors, but, you know, you had that strong platform or foundation from your parents that offered you in, in, in India, but there's some sliding doors in that time in, in London. So you were, you were there for, was it two to three years? Yeah, well, well, I was traveling for two years, you know, the kind of New Zealand thing, traveled around the world, loved Egypt, all these kind of places, but ended back in London looking for work desperately. <laughs> and, um, went into this job at the NSPCC, but I also applied for other temp jobs. And two days later, I could have had a, you know, I was offered a job at the London Weekend Television. And I think, oh, if that was sort of, came three days earlier, I probably would have said yes to that instead of the NSPCC one. And, you know, because it looked amazing working in that kind of area. But, you know, I and, and also when I came back to New Zealand after I thought about marketing communication role in, in a music company, interviewed for it. But again, I've just, I am so glad I stayed in this area. And and even it probably took five years before I figured out that I was a, a fundraiser and felt proud about it. And so it, it took, I, I mean, not that I, I think everything was called something different back in those days, like communications officer or communications manager. But in fact, when I came back to New Zealand, I was put into managerial roles immediately and realized I wasn't there just to write a newsletter that was about raising money and so I learned as much as I could from other fundraisers and figured out how to do it yeah over the years yeah all good causes everyone's a fundraiser in, in, in a sense aren't they so at least they probably should have that thought in their brain but storytelling like that kind of understanding the power of communication and storytelling at NSPCC and then further into your roles back here? Like that was always a, a strong thread? Definitely. I mean, fundraising is about, you know, I love 
the donors in every organization I've been part of, you sadly can't spend individual time with every single one as you, you're all, you know, in organizations that are larger. And it's working out how to talk to them in a way that they care about and figuring out what they care about. And in the, those early days when we were working, Mark, at Auckland City Mission, you know, it was really just our intuition. Yeah. And we were figuring out what to say, who to say it to, how to communicate. And fortunately, we did quite a good job. Yeah, this is where we should introduce something to our listeners. So you were my first boss. So I'd done a sociology degree and then came out of university and I got a job. It basically, was, it was one of my first lessons around, you know, I guess donor-led service, which didn't quite get off the ground, but ended up working with you and the fundraising team at the Auckland City Mission. But something in, in the discovery before we did this episode is, and I wasn't fully cognizant at the time, but when you took on that role, the Auckland City Mission, which is a provider of social services linked to the sort of Anglican church, but they're in a real bother financially. So they were on the brink of financial collapse. Is that right? When you took the role? Love to hear about how you ended up in that role. Well, I just, um, I wanted to move to Auckland. My, she wasn't my wife at the time, but she lived in Auckland. And I thought, oh, well, we sh- should give it a shot <laughs> living in the same place rather than me being in Wellington. Um, I'd been in fundraising for about 10 or so years before, that, and um, this job came up at Auckland City Mission, and some colleagues, fundraising colleagues, sort of said, are you sure you want to do that? It's in a bit of, you know, it's in a bit of bother. And I thought, oh, it's, it's a good cause. It feels really important and relevant. And so, yeah, I thought I'll I'll give it a shot. And Sometimes it's actually amazing to be part of turning around something. And, you know, it's never one single person in any way. I don't want to give that impression. Worked with two really good city missionists. You know, Richard Battle was the first. He was, you know, quite an interesting character, but he was actually good at help, you know, encouraging fundraising and just letting me develop things. I, I was amazed how much power, or not power, but how much opportunity we had in the team, Mark, and you were there, part of it. And then Diane Robertson for the majority of the time. And, you know, just helping, figuring out how to develop the organization, how to get fundraising, how to make it relevant, all the simple things like, oh, people respond really well at Christmas time. I wonder what it would be like in the wintertime when people are cold. And so trying to think in terms of the way, I mean, sorry, it seems so simple, but, you know, in the middle of winter, people get cold. So they understand people being cold and on the street. And so we had big campaigns around that. We tried to involve people physically as well as just donating and you know, I don't know if I'd recommend that too much, but people would bring in toys and things, new toys. We'd insist on them new toys at Christmas time to give away at Christmas, but they'd also give big donations and they would be hopped in. And when you look back now, you think, oh, actually, there's a point in that with fundraising, you get people to do more than just give money. You get them to engage with your organization in a variety of ways, and then they become stronger donors. So 
you know, at the time we brought in someone to do legacies, your role was supporting and growing fundraising. You probably, you know, we were learning as we went, weren't we, Mark? We won a few awards. Actually, that was a good exercise to actually submit some of the campaigns we were doing in for awards because it actually meant you had to think about it what worked why did it work you know describe it Mm. you know even although we set it after the time what what were we aiming for what were our goals (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and i think they were good times for fundraising in quite a area where there wasn't a lot of disciplined fundraising in new zealand but yeah I think we were learning as we went, and we did some amazing work, I think. And the organization, not only did it turn around, but the foundation was set for some very high-level fundraising and, you know, getting people to give individual very high-level gifts for a capital campaign. Yeah. And it was came a little bit after me, but I do think we helped set, or after us, Mark, but it, we did help set the foundation for all that, and um, I feel very proud of that. I hope you do too. Yeah, no, I do. And it was a really formative time for me. So I, I remember your, and this was sort of refreshing, unique, is your willingness to invest in my learning. So it was fundraising was new to me, so putting me into you know fundraising one hundred and one, and really going back to the foundational basics of fundraising and that sort of moving donors up that fundraising pyramid, which still stands well today, but. The unique elements of the role, I guess, were very passionate people on the service side. So some really hard services to fundraise for in many ways. eh? So HIV and AIDS residential service, drug and alcohol support for people, homeless food banks, like some of the stuff actually at that time in that context in the 90s, that's not easy stuff to necessarily fundraise for. And so I just remember this real tension between the guardians of those services and here's Greg and myself and others who are kind of trying to kind of pull it all together and maybe even using that 80-20 rule, right? So, you know, 80% of the services funded by 20% of the, 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 um, the funds, but telling a story to many, so really marketing the cause or getting the word out there. And that tension, not not easy at times, eh? Because you and I felt foul of some of those passionate gatekeepers, some of those services. <laughs> and I'm thinking back to that time. But like you had a unique ability to sort of sit in both worlds, if you like, commercial, sales, fundraising, whatever you want to call it, but also that service delivery. You had to be quite a politician and careful at times. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'm very tactful, though, you know, but I think I always have a huge amount of respect for the people on the front lines because it's something I chose early. I couldn't, you know, that didn't fit me, but how important it is. But and equally, I always felt they had to listen to my side and what we need. And so there was a balance. And so that does involve difficult conversations at times. You know, interestingly, you said, oh, difficult to raise funds for this, this, and this, and then the things you named are actually very powerful things to raise funds for and things donors really want to be part of changing. And I think often there are so many organizations I've been part of that have said, for example, UNHCR, I was there for 
five years in Washington, D.C. and Rome. And they, just about all the staff said, oh, it's so difficult raising funds for refugees. You know, it's so much easier for UNICEF. They have young kids. And I said, my reply would always be, we've got young kids and families in the most vulnerable situations, forced to flee home completely, just don't even have a, a shelter to go to. And they need some organization or organizations to actually respond. Now, it's kind of interesting, you know, often organizations will say, oh, it's so difficult to raise funds for this, or this is going to be really hard. But in fact, it's figuring out what the donors are looking for and really making sure your communications give them the opportunity to make the difference they are looking for. And you can't, you know, you're not going to have your message for every single person in the country, but there's plenty of people that are really looking to make a difference in certain areas. I look at that Auckland City Mission time, and I think if I knew what I know now back then, we would have even done much more. And I would have, you know, we were doing things on the smell of an oily rag and doing it really well and getting some great money with support from advertising agencies and, you know, basically TV networks and we hardly spent any money. Yeah. I sometimes think, imagine if we knew how to spend money well in that role. We could have really taken it to another level. But, you know, that was our our moment. Yeah, absolutely. No, a (laughs) phenomenal time for me. And I remember being in, you know, briefing ad agencies around conveying cause and you know like i think the campaign i'm thinking about was christmas is missing for 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 hundreds of thousands of people and that campaign hugely successful but sort of that utilizing resources to raise money and like you touched on before it's probably good just to clarify this so that foundation that we were involved in and building the auckland city mission back up and creating that organization so they went on and raised a hundred million circa 100 million and they've created a whole wraparound services and physical center where we used to be based focused on doing homeless different would be a simple way of putting putting it so helping Mm. people in that sort of maybe when they've lost a job they're going through mental health issues and they really need the triage or this this assistance and support to get their lives back on the track and they've created a whole new innovative service off the back of that capital campaign it's pretty amazing and I mean, I have no part in that and have a huge amount of respect for the people who made that happen. But I do feel we had a part in setting the foundation for it. Like, it would have been difficult to go from no found supporter base to that. So we helped set up AIDS. I mean, basically, I don't think there was even a database, you know, of donors or, or very, you know, maybe a little one that they sent the newsletter to and... And it was just amazing setting up a good basic fundraising program and that it worked. I think the difference between then and now is I do have a lot more confidence in fundraising and knowing what good fundraising can do and making sure you measure it, you sort of set the goal and then you measure it carefully, you set a roadmap and just make sure 
you get there and one of the most valuable people in my team, well, everyone's valuable, we have a small team, but the analyst and, you know, making sure I look at different dashboards on various parts of our fundraising daily. And back in our day, Mark, when we were working at the city, Auckland City Mission, I think we got something monthly and it was a month after. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Things have changed. And really, that part is so much for the better. You know, we, and, yeah. And what I, and I love it. I love that part. I need other people to help make it happen for me because I'm not the most technical person, but. I love reading analysis and thinking, oh, maybe we should do this differently or tweak that or do that. And and then, you know, I would never have thought I'd be in fundraising for 33 years, have thought about changing out into something else, probably in the charitable sector. But I actually love being a direct fundraiser and involved and not even distant as an advisor or a consultant, you know, I'm responsible and with the team and people in my team, but there's something still exciting, still getting me out of bed, still filling my life with some purpose around obviously doing something good for people that need the funding, uh, you know, people and services that need the funding, but I get a real kick out of just seeing it and measuring it. So it's not, you know, I, I probably somewhat altruistic, but I don't want to make it sound. I do it because it it's good for me. You get a kick as mm. well, mm. and I get a lot out of it, and I enjoy the parts of measuring it. And it's not just about doing good; it's about creating something that is worthwhile. And you could you could do that in a marketing job. I, I have good friends who've done very well, you know, selling futures electricity and that kind of thing. I love talking to them about it, you know, but sometimes I think, oh, yeah, they, they sometimes probably look at me and think they like what I do. <laughs> you know, so I, they just get a bit more money than I have over my, over the years, but that that's life. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, like a lot of people – the sort of natural path is is sort of graduate from fundraising to sort of leadership roles and and maybe being a CEO of a nonprofit. But people talk about the sort of relentless nature of of fundraising and that you know every year you start from scratch if you like unless you've got some committed income. But for you, as after the Auckland City Mission was was heading overseas and you've had some phenomenal experiences. So namely the UN, but really interesting roles and based in uh, I think you're based in Geneva for a period yeah. of time, like. Was that that? But that was exciting. Well, yeah, I had done a stint with UNICEF New Zealand and based in Wellington for a couple of years. It's a pretty small organisation at the time, and then came to Auckland City Mission and then applied for a role in Geneva. Didn't really think I'd get it, but I did. And this is before Zoom calls, right? This is this is like probably phone call to interview, was that, or, or something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was back in the day where, you know, you didn't even have a a video link. <laughs> I had I had papers strewn out across my bed and tried to kind of sound knowledgeable and that kind of thing. But interestingly, you know, so the UNICEF role was a global role called Development 
role. And basically, I was responsible for sharing or capacity development for sharing good ideas between countries and getting them to implement good ideas. So big training events globally for all the fundraisers, that kind of thing. And I thought, oh, they put me in this role. <laughs> That's amazing. But it was, you know, we made it quite strategic, set up an online platform and shared good ideas so people could come in and see the best direct mail or see, you know, a bequest program in the US that was doing really well or whatever and get quite inside information that you don't get at a training event. And for its time, it was quite advanced. So this would have been the year 2000, Mark, somewhere around there, and or even earlier. Just Yeah, just around that time, just the change of the, the century. I feel so old now. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing I feel is probably one of the top two things that I feel most proud of in my fundraising career and you'd think, oh, how could you make a big impact like that on a global organization? But we set up a thing where we discuss what are the seven things that would have the most impact on fundraising globally. And, you know, one was to be good at emergency fundraising, you know, because UNICEF emergency situations, you could almost, you know, we had some great people out there in different countries, Dieter from Germany, uh, someone from, you know, the UK market, and they really knew how to do it well. And so we, and then there was, you know, obviously legacies, major gift fundraising. There were pledge fundraising, which we called monthly giving in UNICEF. So we set up manuals for each of those areas but not just written by me or my colleagues. I got little working groups with two co-chairs for each key of the seven areas and probably about five people in each working group and of the best around the world. And, you know, said to each, we need a manual, we need best examples and do all this. And we created this within the time frame. We got it all you know, in the old days, we had a, had a ring binder and all professionally yeah. looking really good. And the one, I mean, all, each of these, the monthly giving had a huge impact. But the one that had a huge impact, I think, was the emergency fundraising and communications manual, which ended up going to every communications officer in UNICEF in every country as well. So not just fundraising, because it was about being prepared, making sure you know, if you were interviewed, you had a UNICEF hat and a unit. Yeah, sorry, all the little practical things from fundraising back then. You had to have pre-printed envelopes, all the all the very basics. But it was so helpful for each fundraising office to know. And then we had a checklist or a cheat sheet at the front. Have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done that? It's like your warrant of fitness. Are you ready for emergency fundraising or are you ready for bequest fundraising? Brilliant. Or how far along are you with monthly giving? I mean, the emergency one, I, I even had the head of UNICEF come down, international mass manager, director, say, what's going on here? What are you guys doing? And, and she didn't give compliments very 
quickly, but she yeah. said because it had she, such it an effect, it had had a, it like an obvious effect and and mattered on the bottom line, like it, a total difference in the amount of money you could raise for those, you know, in those emergency and, situations. And interestingly, a few years, well, a year after after I left, there was the tsunami, and I think UNICEF did everything extremely well, and I'd like to think that emergency manual that we were all part of, you know, that there was a working group and I was one of the co-chairs that had the manual that went to comms people in Indonesia, people here, you know, people followed the checklist perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they raised a lot of money that they put to great use. Yeah. So, and you, I mean, I remember you had a, a passion, I talked about it earlier, around your commitment to education around fundraising how-to principles you know best examples all of those things you've you've always been committed to i think i suppose a lot has changed in that world now around the web so you know all those manuals would be amazing websites now probably won't they and all sort of online education or there'll be but those are the the tools you had at the time was that a difficult decision to leave the excitement of europe and and the sort of scale at which your career was involved in was that a, a tough decision or actually coming home was so overrode that uh yeah there's always i mean just touching on the education and podcast and things mark you're you know it's, it's amazing that you're now part of all that and giving great information to people out there and inspiration and you know people can listen in and they're doing a lot of listening by the sounds of it <laughs> so it's a wonderful thing but um, leaving those international roles, it's that balance between your personal life and your career. They were not good dis- career decisions to come back to New Zealand on the surface of it. And I still sometimes think, oh, what would have, have been different? But how would it have been different? But when we came back to New Zealand, my wife's father had passed away and she wanted to spend time with her mother and we had a you know one and a half year old who we had in Geneva Aroha and you know it became like it was good to come back home and so came back and that was the stage I worked with IHC the first time and it ended up being a really good time where the kids got to because then we had a son back in New Zealand and so we got really connected they spent time with their nana and with my father and you know five years back here i still had itchy feet and then gina said why don't you apply for this role with unhcr so i did and then got that in washington dc so again we went overseas and spent time but then again came back to new zealand as the kids were getting close to teenage years i wanted them to or in and I wanted them to know what it was like to be New Zealanders and grow up. And, you know, my wife is Māori, so they needed to explore their Māori heritage, our two kids. And I have no regrets. It was good to come back. And I enjoy my work and, you know, enjoy it's smaller than a working for an international organisation, but the principles are pretty much similar in, you know, figuring out how to get it right for an organization, how to communicate 
and having measuring that impact is worthwhile and I have no regrets and our two children have loved being back here and um, you know they're both loving and, and learning a lot about their heritage Māori heritage and you know a little bit of our mind as well but I think that was really important for them and I'm not sitting here thinking I gave up an international career in fundraising for them in any way I love the life we've got here yeah. and New Zealand is a pretty amazing place to live in yeah absolutely and something you've always been committed to and and I've sort of prefaced it by this by saying that fundraising is you could say it's competitive you know you could say there's only a finite amount of uh, funds out there to, to put to a good cause but you believe in collaboration or sharing best practice sharing all that information and through that I've seen you you know passionate about fundraising in Student New Zealand so the sort of peak body that serves the industry but helping to kind of bring everyone up if you like like lift lift all ships or lift all boats that something that's been a thread for you throughout your career, helping others to be the best fundraiser they can be? Yeah, I mean, my little part, it's good. And I think sharing, if people are interested, it's always good to share something of your knowledge and what you've learned. And hopefully they can, you know, I've had people come to me years after and say, can you share with me that strategy on a page thing? And I thought, oh, you can still remember that press. <laughs> it was about five years ago I made that. I think there are various things that have helped me in my career because it's a long one. And it's always good to share so people can hopefully learn more quickly. And along my time, there's been people who have shared things with me that have helped me develop my fundraising practice and career. And so it's nice to pass that on as much as I can. I also think sort of holding and protecting things is not helpful in our area. I don't think there's too much people can take from what we're doing that would have any detriment to us. I think in a country, any country, but New Zealand or any country in the world, because I've worked in lots of different countries, it's not saying we're taking money away from other charities. It's really, I think you're growing the pie often. I, I One thing we do look at, particularly in IHC, is making sure we become, if we can, more the first or second charity in people's giving or for you know they what they think so if things come up and they have to choose to stop giving one or two monthly gifts hopefully it's not IHC that they stop on and they keep giving but you know there are times we've invested in growing our monthly giving program during COVID when everyone sort of stopped and these are things I've learned from overseas is the times that people say, oh, we can't do fundraising now. It's, people are really suffering out there. You can't ask them for money. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a load of, BS. Was, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to use the BS word, but um, really, I mean, the interesting thing is with less people out there in the market, because we are in a market, there's more opportunity. You know, suppliers are out there. You can work with really good suppliers and build relationships with, and it's a good time to invest in fundraising often, yeah. and it's a time you'll grow more quickly. And people going, you know, 
even in difficult times, there's always quite a big group of middle-income earners that to higher-income earners that are not, you know, they're hopefully going to do okay and come out the other end unless it's a dire situation. And when you look at COVID, you know, in the end, people came out of that fly (laughs) with inflation and things. So whoever decided not to invest in fundraising during those years made a bad choice. So I do tell people there are things I've learned from my career. And, you know, I know I was in charge with UNHCR. I chaired their year, their investment group, investing in various countries. And we invested heavily in Spain and their fundraising and their monthly giving program during the time when they were in the midst of the deepest financial crisis. And every time you looked at the business news in Europe, you'd think Spain is going to become the next Greece at that time. And yet it did extremely well. Their monthly Mm. giving was really, you know, grew during that time. And sometimes fundraising isn't about just doing what everyone thinks is the right move. It's knowing more about what the donor thinks and what's going on in the head of the donor and communicating that well. So I don't know if I answered that very well, but I got a bit lost. I might have to edit that one out. (laughs) I think this is fundamental issue. So, you know, if you look at the charity sector and and the governance structure and and sort of a lot of volunteer boards who don't necessarily have exposure to what you've, things about what you've just described around investing in or the need to invest in fundraising, when it seems counterintuitive, the part of you actually want to, get out there and and sort of, you know, maybe bridge that gap in knowledge. You know, because I've seen personally uh, experience, I've seen upfront and personal where, you know, trustees have got nervous about expenditure, they've stepped away from investing and the fundraiser didn't necessarily have the voice or the power or the sort of influence to say, do you know what, this is the time we should be doubling down on investment and, you know, acquiring new donors and getting our message out there and, like, because, you, you know, you're sitting on a career with over 30 years in this space and, you know, you're playing a really vital role for, for your IHC. But maybe the industry needs Greg Miller wider. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, you know, I, I mean, if people want to hear what I have to say, I'm always willing to share something up to a point. I mean, my work is fine. I, I'm trustee with UNHCR coming into New Zealand, the UN Refugee Agency, and it's nice to be involved in that. But I think for me, what was fascinating, IHC was exactly the same. You know, the trustees and the chief executive and the finance people, they don't just say, oh, Greg, you're a 33-year-old person, you know it all, we'll just give you whatever you want to invest and grow. I have to justify it, I have to measure it, and I have to say, invest in this now or keep investing, and this is where we will get to. What is interesting is it took a lot of convincing over a couple of you know years. I have the similar dashboard that I share with them every time they have to make a decision or sign off on a contract or something like that. And you know, basically, I treat them like shareholders in a business or something. Mm. You know, they need to know what they're making a decision on and what to expect. And if the program doesn't deliver and it doesn't work, 
they'll know just as fast as if it is working. Yeah. You know, so you do expose yourself, but I do have a lot more confidence in good fundraising. I know what it looks like and how to measure it and and then make sure the trustees have enough information. They don't want to be communicated with all the time. The chief executive doesn't want to be communicated all the time. But they do like to think, oh, we're on track. That's great. Tick. Okay, what's the next problem? Yeah. <laughs> Fundraising isn't our problem at this year this year, you know, it's going well. That's what you're looking for. And looking to the future in terms of, you know, probably more widely the the sector, are you seeing innovation? Are you seeing things? I'm I'm thinking particularly around possibly COVID and that in person fundraising was really challenged because we, we couldn't, you know, leave our suburb often. I think I, I you, heard that looking at the future and um what it looks like i from an ihc perspective covid drove some amazing things in our services you know we learned to communicate with our families of children with intellectual disability developed a online game for young adults with intellectual disability to learn how to manage their money and and it was amazing to see fundraising dollars put towards these things. So the online Afi Namatua for parents, basically it, it provides some great information, but it also is a sharing tool. So one mother can talk to another mother, you know, who's been through it. Like I like all of us in life, you don't necessarily want the professor to tell you what's right and how to do something, but Another mother that said, oh, yes, I was having problem with my child learning toileting or something like that. You know, they can, it's an amazing tool that we developed out of COVID and people are sharing information and we had to do it because we had to figure out ways to make our our work relevant when we were all in lockdown. <laughs> um, and from a fundraising perspective, we pretty much went quite a lot digital so we saved money sending out we always thought you had to send out receipts by mail for our monthly giving and we went to email we didn't get that many cancellations you know we not any more than normal but that was forced on us and and so the first lockdown when we got to april the first we were pivoted as everyone says during covid <laughs> It's, it's a terrible word, but it works. Um, and we got something out, tax receipt to all our donors by, I think, the 5th of April, mm. but electronically. Yeah. And now we have developed this year into a personalized donor portal so they can get their last five years of receipts, plus they can get information, plus we can start communicating with them specifically about some parts of our work that's in their postal code or near their postal code, if that makes sense. So they could see a volunteer friend in this area or the work IHC's doing with a family, you know, within privacy areas. But there's lots of things that we can do. We have great stories. Sometimes people want to see what is happening in my community because I do feel part of the story and the brand and figuring that out is we are in the community rather than 
uh, like a lot of people might also support UNICEF or World Vision, which is about in another community. So somehow our donor experience, which you could call a brand experience or whatever, is about our differentiation is how do we make this feel as local and community as we can and as we are able to do because we are in those communities. And in the past, you had pretty much communicated with everyone in the same way. Now we have a portal that allows us, say, with you, uh, Mark, I believe you live somewhere near Devonport, we could talk about our Kapahaka group in, in the North Harbour that have a intellectual disability that are doing great kapahaka work you know and if you had a little recording you might find that kind of more relevant than a kapahaka group in wellington mm. i don't know yeah and that use of technology or the force to do things differently through a you know what it seems like the most challenging time for fundraising and you, you mentioned earlier out you know you can't fundraise through COVID or a you know really awful time or but ends up being a real strength or forces you to do things that you wouldn't normally do but touching on fundraising like art or science sounds like you're more on the data learn from data learn from the science to inform the art would that be one way of putting it probably I mean Back in our early days, back if you want to feel older, we probably did a lot more intuition and art, but learning quickly and desperately learning from others and trying to figure out, will this work? And But it wasn't really based on any, you know, immediate testing. But the international organizations I've worked with have been very strong on having a testing discipline and figuring out what is working. And I feel incredibly um, privileged to have learned from that. You know, beginning, you can do it easily with direct mail, fundraising, that kind of thing. But in the end, you can do it with every part of fundraising. And, you know, I've always struggled a little bit with what we call leadership giving in IHC, which is major donors and bequests and figuring out what is the impact? How do you measure if someone's doing a good job? You know, what does it look like? And so in the same way that we do with our monthly giving and everything, we work out, okay, how many visits, how many calls, you know, is someone moving higher up pipeline, whatever you call it, you know, are they, what are we doing? How are people engaging with us? Mm. And Figuring out how to get data that you can actually measure that is valuable. And what I think is valuable is if you can do that, you can talk to your investors or your board and say, we need another bequest officer. You know, this is why it's so valuable. Or we need someone else to work with our key major donors. And if we can measure it, it becomes a little bit less airy-fairy and and sort of say this has a long-term impact. You know, yeah, I'm sure it does, but give me the proof without, you know. And, and there's lots of proof in fundraising and there's lots of ways you can track response and, and across the board. So that's what I've been trying to do. Unfortunately, I have a really good guy who works with me 
doing and he was here when i was here 20 years ago he's come and gone a couple of times but it was nice to bring him back and he's developed a few new skills he uses power bi amazingly well and i i, I say can i get this jonathan and he'll come up with something pretty damn close to what i was looking right. for and you know we can kind of go on a journey and i guess i i sometimes look at it like if you're going with the family, Mark, and you have a few kids now, but say you load up the station wagon or SUV or whatever, you know, hopefully it's an electric one now, <laughs> and you're heading to, I don't know, Hawke's Bay or something like that, you kind of, you know, a kind of map, you're thinking, where will we stop for lunch? You know, you've got the younger kids in the back saying, when will we get there? You kind of prepare for your journey and you know where you're going and you know what it looks like along the way. And that's what I see fundraising as being, you know, you're you're right, you've got your roadmap, you know where you're going. You might decide, oh, okay, let's take this route to the right because it looks nice or there's a detail to it. But you're still heading towards Hawkesway, mm. you know, and you're measuring along the way to check you're getting there on time. So you're meeting your auntie or something like that, <laughs> you know, I don't know, or going to, going to a nice beach or something like that. So you've got something to look forward to. You know what it looks like. You can tell the kids, oh, we're going to have an amazing time. The beach is fantastic. You've kind of prepared the way. And so the board I'm not saying they're like kids in the back saying, when are we going to get there? But <laughs> there may be an element the of that sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And as we look towards wrapping up, let's stick with the kid theme. Do your children understand what you do, take an interest? Have you turned them into fundraisers at uni or whatever whatever path they've taken? Have they? What's their take on dad's job? Oh, that's a good question. I think they're, they've both been much more gravitated towards their mother. <laughs> I mean, I love them. But as far as career and that kind of thing, that's they're going in the arts direction and would love to, I think, do curating for art galleries or being involved in that kind of thing, which is fantastic. I think fundraising is quite a difficult thing to explain to your kids before they start shutting down and getting bored. Um, so I kind of occasionally talk about it. And, you know, talking like this, Mac, you really, it's its not for everyone. You've got quite a unique podcast here for quite an important group of people, but its you're not going to be sharing it with I don't know, every single person in, in New Zealand. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a niche. And the my niche. kids haven't yep. quite got into that niche, but, you know, I think they like what I do. And, you know, I, I they, they don't have to think about it much. <laughs> Greg Miller, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely Podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.